fantastic move. That's massive. Oh, the slot on the grid. He was stalled on the grid. This is an official Supercars podcast. Yeah, a strange weekend. It was one of those strange weekends where there was just all these big drama events. I can remember there was an almighty tangle. With the rollovers, my right arm almost went out the window. Full slow-mo view of watching Lowndes cartwheel into oblivion. Murph and I, we were there first and we actually, we opened the back door first because the car was sort of bent over the fence. He was as white as a ghost. I knew he'd actually been hurt, but it was more about whether he'd been gravely hurt, you know, and really needed serious intervention. Welcome to the new Supercars Rewind podcast. First up, one of the most iconic crashes of the 90s. Craig Lowndes' frightful rollover at Calder Park 1999. The image of Craig's HRT Commodore pirouetting over the concrete wall is etched into supercars history. But equally as memorable was the response from some of the toughest drivers on the grid who leapt from their vehicles to rush to Lowndes Aid. On this pod, we'll hear from two of those drivers, Garth Tander and Neil Crompton, and hear from Craig himself as to what that moment was like, as well as the aftermath and the injuries he suffered. Lowndes on the inside, escape from the outside, will the enforcer get a good jump? Away we go, Whoa, and Lowndes bogged him down. Look through the middle, it's oh, it, uh, bright, bright. Yeah. And Stephen Richards, the outside. Oh, that was a bright oh, start. Oh, look at this. No, look at that, that's oh, so tender. No. Oh, He's no. got no. an Craig Lowndes. Oh, la- oh. oh, my oh, goodness God, me. That's a nasty... Oh, Craig Lowndes, car one, our championship leader. You could see there was a contact there between two cars. It set off a chain reaction. And our championship leader, Craig Lowndes, one of the wins cars. Stephen Richards, boy, oh, boy. What they want to do is get over there and just make sure that thing, they've got all these fire extinguishers and everything, because if that thing catches fire, that's really very nice. Look at the drivers running. Garth Tander is there, Greg Murphy. All these guys are friends. Crompton in there, they're all concerned for their... uh, Fellow competitors, safety and welfare. They are all rushing in there to his aid. Garth, Calder Park, 1999. We're going back a while here. Craig Lowndes pirouetting through the air and coming to a sudden stop on the embankment at Calder Park. Can you just give me your recollection of what that day was like, even before that race, the event? Because it had been a pretty dramatic weekend, it sounds like. It was a, yeah, a strange weekend. It was one of those strange weekends where... There was just all these big drama events. So um, in the Formula Ford, the day before, Justin Cotter had a massive moment, exactly where Craig had his role the following day on Sunday. But on Saturday, in the first heat of the Formula Ford Championship, Justin Cotter was tagged and spun on the front straight and hit the, the kerb that was from the old World Touring Car Championship layout where the Thunderdome and the Calder Road Course used to join. And there was a kerb there, sort of half, three-quarters of the way down the front straight. Formula Ford obviously being really, really low, jumped this kerb and Cotter flew through the air and landed on the embankment where Craig rolled. It was massive. Like, it was... felt like the car was, like, 20 metres in the air. It was huge. And, you know, when the car landed, thankfully Justin was okay, so we'd never seen anything like that before. And that is exactly the same position we saw the Formula Ford crash yesterday. identical, absolutely Oh, look at the bank. The dirt marks there are where the Formula Ford went in. No, look, that's... It had been a weekend littered with dramatic crashes and major moments in the lead-up to the second V8 Supercars race. As the cars rolled out onto the grid, it was set to be an all-HRT front row after a commanding 1-2 finish in the opening race of the weekend. It didn't start off too bad. We were on pole position. We had Mark Scaife beside us. Uh, so there was a bit of a battle, obviously, trying to get off the line and make sure that we kept our position. But I actually screwed it up. got Neil Crompton and we're chatting Calder Park 1999 and a chance for you to show your athletic side. 
Neil, on that day? Well, you know, Carl Lewis might have been okay over uh, the 400 metres or 100 metres or the 50 metres or whatever it was, but he didn't have a patch on me leaping out of a spinning car at Calder trying to figure out what was going on with Lowndes. So Calder was, always used to have a really tight grid. It was really tightly packed. And, um, and I remember we all, I got a good launch and I think I was off the third row. Craig was off the front row, I think, and got a bad launch. Uh, Russell was in there, maybe the second row. I can remember there was an almighty tangle between Tanda, Richards, as in Richo, Stephen Richards, obviously Craig, I was mixed in there as well. Got off as quick as I could. I mean, it's about to go from third to fourth in the gearbox. And then I got the hit from the left-hand rear quarter. And we all sort of ended up three, four wide and all sort of tripped over each other. And I got spun one way across the front, I think, of Bright or Ingle. And then as I was spun across the front of Bright or Ingle, I tagged Lowndes, who was getting spun himself as well. And he got basically spun around the front of the whole pack. He sp I spun to the inside of the track and Craig spun to the outside of the track. Bit of a jostling going on between Russell Ingle and Steve Richards. But the impact was heavy enough to put the car up on its side and it popped the, the tyre off the rim and then the rim dug in and actually then kept going onto its roof. So at that point, for me, it was all about trying to protect myself. And I remember it clearly today that as soon as it went onto its roof, the front windscreen, which was glass back then, shattered. The glass was going all over me. Luckily, I had a full-face helmet on, which I've always done, with my visor closed. I put my right leg onto the brake pedal, which if anyone sees the vision of the car upside down doing 160 kilometres an hour, um, you'll see the brake lights on. And that's me basically bracing myself as good as I could into the seat. Thankfully, at that point, HRT and, and the category started to look at more safety elements. So I had a window net, um, which I'll explain why that was so crucial for me in a minute. But as I got going also upside down, I didn't know which where I was going, in what direction. I, I remember all the sparks coming off the car and everything else, putting my hands on top of my head, my helmet to protect my neck because we didn't have a hands device. Then it started barrel roll. And for me, I tried to explain it as like a, a really bad roller coaster ride because I didn't know where I was going, where direction I was, get, I was heading towards. Then it sort of bounced and went up and come to a rest upside down. And again, I still had no idea where I was on the track, whether I was infield, outfield. I ended up off to the right, rotating on the grass, and it was literally like a one of those things. I can still see it in my mind now. Full slow-mo view of watching Lowndes cartwheel into oblivion. And we've all been involved in shunts and we'd all seen lots of shunts, but my thought process at the time was, oh, Jesus, this one's going to hurt. And then as I spun 360, I could just see Craig's car barrel rolling in front of me. It was like this thing out of Mad Max. It was really strange. Oh, my oh goodness, God, mate. That's a nasty... Oh, whoa, Craig Lowndes, car one, our championship leader. You could see there was a contact there between two cars. It set off a chain reaction. With the rollovers going on, my, my right elbow being on top of my, like my hand on my helmet, my right elbow almost, my right arm almost went out the window. So the window net actually caught my arm and, and kept it inside the cabin. Otherwise, I probably might have not, not have had a right arm. And so I had the door open and I was waiting for it to stop because once it got onto the grass, it just went forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And then eventually it did stop. And in fact, when I first flew out the car, I didn't actually unhook the radio. So I did the sort of cartoon character, boing, and then managed to unplug it and then bolted across the road to go and see how he was. But I switched it off and myself, Greg Murphy, Neil Crompton, 
we all sprinted over to Craig um, to try and get him out. Look at the drivers running. Yeah. Garth Tander is there. Greg Murphy. The, all these guys are friends. Crompton in there. They're all concerned for their uh, fellow competitors' safety and welfare. They are all rushing in there to his aid. Then the next one was basically where I was, where am I? Then I heard Greg Murphy. There was Neil Crompton. There was uh, Johnny Faulkner. He was as white as a ghost. I knew he'd actually been hurt, but it was more about whether he'd been gravely hurt you know, and really needed serious intervention. And in fact, Tim Schenken, who's only just recently retired as our long-serving, hard-working race director, he was actually pretty cross with us and he spoke to me about it in the week afterwards because he didn't like the idea of the drivers suddenly turning into what was then known as CAMS officials, now it's Motorsport Australia. First intervention, medical intervention and proper retrieval of a driver and a car that may be burning or whatever is actually the domain of the officials. He's right, but it's hard to detach the emotion because as though there is warfare going on out there, but there's also a degree of uh, religious camaraderie. You know, we're all in the same gang, we're all in the same group, you know, happily chop off each other's fingers to be able to steal the trophy. But there's also a strange level of respect when it comes to uh, looking after your brethren. So I think that everybody that did that at that time was just gravely concerned about the fact that he may well have hurt himself pretty badly because that was a monumental shunt. I mean, that was an ugly shunt. We don't have too many of them, thankfully. Um, but I remember kind of hovering around the door and um, I, I knew he was okay, but he was certainly knocked around and, and that actually did a fair bit of damage to his knee and it still lingers to this day. He probably doesn't let on too much about it, but it, he does carry it. Typical Craig. Oh, my leg hurts. Um, and Murph and I, we were there first. And we actually, we opened the back door first because the car was sort of bent over the fence. And we and like, oh, well, we can't get him out through the back door because there's too much roll cage in the way. And then we got to the front door. And by this stage, I think Craig had already done, done his belts and he was sort of standing there. So we sort of helped him out. I know, I know Larry Perkins was there, but he was on the other side looking at all our suspension pickup points. Notably Larry Perkins, who was doing uh, very... Um serious engineering debrief on where they had the rear roll centre in the HRT car, what springs and what dampers it had. <laughs> so everyone was really concerned about yeah, Craig's health. Yeah, you're all right, mate. Anyway, let's get back to how this thing's going so fast. Yeah, Larry had a tape measure in his pocket and <laughs> he was spent most of the time measuring up the exhaust on the HRT car and, the, and we were still running the four-link rear end back then, so he was looking at the trailing arm positions and he claims he was there to help me. He thought, he said, oh, well, you know, Murph and Tander, they, they had Lowndes under control, so I didn't really need to do anything. But there's a heap of photos of, Lowndes, of, of Larry just measuring up, eyeballing the back of the HRT car. And funny enough, the next year we went back to Calder, the Perkins cars were a lot faster when we went back this following year. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> when you pull up in a scenario like that with the rush to get out of the cars, is it, is it easy for a driver to forget to do something and, you know, get out of the car the wrong way? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> As I pulled up and, and as I was jumping up, out, I switched the car off because it, it, it was a VS Commodore then and it was an XHRT car and the ignition switch was literally the la first thing you saw when you got in the car and the last thing you saw when you got out. So I just flicked the ignition off and jumped out. But I remember talking to Crompton afterwards and he was in such a hurry to get out of the car that he forgot to turn the ignition off. So the thing was sitting there idling in neutral while getting, getting helping getting Craig out, making sure Craig was okay. And then once we sort of gather our thoughts and go, oh, geez, we better suppose we get our cars and drive back to pit lane. By the time Crompton got back there, the thing had boiled. So I don't even think he took part in the next race. I don't know if it's time-bearing or wounds, but uh, he vehemently denies that claim. 
It's funny. I'm, well, you would, wouldn't you? You would deny <laughs> that, wouldn't you? you were, that's in forgetting to turn your race car off. It, was sitting, it would have been sitting there for like five minutes, idling away. <laughs> in such a rush to get out of the car, do you remember to turn it off? I can't recall. Why? Is there a story around it? Was it still <laughs> running, was it? Is it... I, I may have heard that uh, you may have accidentally lunched a motor in the rush. No, that's no? A, I haven't heard that story. Who told, Has Glenn Seaton told that story, has he? No, no, it begins with a G, and he may also have been one of the other drivers on location and now shared the broadcast with us. Tander, I'll square up with him when I see him. <laughs> Jep jumped out of the thing and uh, ran across the racetrack, but no, she was... Other than the fact that um, Tander or Richo or one of those dogs managed to rip the front off my car, uh, I was uh, otherwise unscathed. That's him being scurrilous. So hopefully Lance should be OK. What yes. a frightening frightening sequence of events and Craig we can hear some of the crowd cheering so Craig yeah, is out, out the car ambulance taking me to the hospital the doctor looking at me over check my neck out my pelvis my back uh, my elbow which you know again luckily was just a bruised bone but then for some reason back then he asked me if I could do a squat so I went to do a squat and my left knee just went out sideways Ooh. and then of course at that moment it was basically yeah okay you've done some damage uh, and again, if people can remember, I, I asked the doctor to put it in a brace. I went back to the track to show people that I was okay, or semi-okay. <laughs> and I give credit to Mark Skay for this point because he actually rang uh, Dr. Julian Feller, who was a Essendon re uh, knee reconstructed doctor that worked out of the Bundura Hospital. And it was through Mark that spoke to his manager, which is Craig Kelly, Craig Kelly being in the AFL scene got me an appointment to see Julian the next day. And I went and saw him. Again, the second painful part of it was he put his hand on the inside of my left knee, he put his other hand on the outside of my ankle and could move it almost three to four inches. Mm. And the pain that it shot back up through my body goes, yeah, you've done some damage. <laughs> and at that point, I have to say that I rang Jeff Gretsch and the team to say, this is the scenario. Julian can operate on me this afternoon. And to be honest, the team said we'd like you to refer it, um, refer it to later in life, basically. And I actually went against the team and, and got it done that afternoon. I did bugger it because I actually went back and spoke to jo uh, Dr. Julian Fowler and he said, you can wait, you can obviously brace it. Problem is, is if you wait three, four, five months down the track, whatever ligaments are there are going to have already started to heal. I can't do a, a perfect job then as I can do now. So I thought, bugger it, in 30 years' time, I'm going to be very thankful I made the decision. I went under the knife that night. You know, it was one of those freak things. Like, people say, oh, you know, the curb was the problem and the safety standards of the racetrack were the problem. But the reality was just the angles that all the cars touched. It, it, we could have been on the front straight of Sandown and the same thing, if we had all the same angles, the car would have rolled over. It's just one of those freak things that took place. Yes, then when he did clip that old curve for the old circuit layout, that tripped the car over, but... You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that that created the rollover. It was just one of those freak circumstances. And having uh, Craig not around for a race, did, was that sort of a chance for everybody to try and make some points up? Were you surprised that he won the championship anyway? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I sort of forgot that he won that championship. Then you look back and go, well, that's a pretty big effort. I missed one round, which was Tasmania. Uh, Cameron McConville filled in. It was absolutely teeming down there. I remember sitting at home, watching it. I was laughing to myself, going, thank God I'm not down there. <laughs> and uh, then I went through a program of rehabil rehabilitation, hyperbaric chambers, did everything. And then my first race back after Tasmania was Winton. And that was when I was back in the car. So luckily I only missed one round out of the whole program.
Did you get any blowback from the team for going rogue and making your own decision like that? Uh, a little bit. They were disappointed. But at the end of the day, it was, it was more about my health thinking 20, 30 years down the track, not three months down the track. And for me, I was very fortunate. The championship had big breaks between races. As I said, I only, I only missed one round. I raced at Winton with a brace. They had to modify the race suit to go over the brace. I remember cams coming to me, which it was cams back then, not Motorsport Australia. My safety examination was basically, can I get out of a car? Can I walk across the workshop floor? Can I climb up on top of a bench um, <laughs> under my, my own esteem? Because they were trying to simulate if a car stops out on track, I can get myself out, which I could, walk across and get over the barriers. And that was basically, I did that, big tick, away you go. Back in the car for the remainder of that championship, which you won, by the way, were you hampered at all with that leg? I was only hampered at the start, obviously using the clutch. I got to learn how to, to left foot brake quite quickly. And around Winton, I do a lot anyway, because you carry second gear a lot throughout through that top section. So... I know the team also at that point tried to implement a hand clutch, like a motorbike. Had to get approval by not only uh, supercars, but the teams. Both refused. So I had to get enough strength in my left leg to be able to at least start the car. Once I started it, I could rest it onto the, the heel rest and then drive the car basically manually without a clutch. And that's what I did. Something that's always fascinated me about motorsport is some drivers have a big one in their career. and. Mika Hakkinen, 95 Adelaide, came back, became a world champion. Some, they, I don't know, they, they struggle to get back what they lost before the accident? Yeah, I think so. I think that even in the current days, you look at, and I'll, I'll point out Chaz Mostert, like, you know, he had that monster crash at, at Bathurst. And, you know, at that time, he was the driver. He was the man to beat. Um, up, until, up until then, um, you know, he, he was untouchable. He could place the car where he wanted to. He could do everything. He extracted things out of the car that we were, we were all trying to hope to. Since then, it's almost like he's been on his own personal journey. You know, I know he's swapped teams and done other things, but you, know, you, you look at his attitude right now, he doesn't seem to be the sharpness of, of what he was pro before that crash. Um, you, know, you look at some of his comments, you know, even the start of this you know, championship, saying, oh, I'm not a championship contender prior to the race he would have been out there saying, yeah, I am the man, I am the man. So I think there's been, you're right, it can affect people different ways. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that Chaz is you know, not going to win races and win championships, but it's just, he's, almost his outlook now has, has changed. Did you ever talk to him about that? Very similar knee injury. I know Chaz also broke a bone, but the knee injury is the thing that's lingered with him. And was there any similarities to you two? Uh, not really, because I didn't break bones, I broke lig ligaments. So for me, uh, like when I come to Tasmania or go to cold places, my knee aches. Um, I've lost the ability to basically run, which I used to love to do. Um, at the end of 18, when I finally retired, I actually went back to the doctor and got it all scraped out again uh, because he said the cartilage in my left knee now is worn away so much that if I continue to run two years, three years down the track, I'm going to have to have get a knee replacement. So, so I've had to now give up running, which is the same as Chaz, find another source of, of fitness which I've taken up mountain biking so that is very similar but for Chaz I think he's, he's had more of a, an extensive damage to his body than I did because it was only ligaments and you know he, he completely shattered his knee. Neil you got to drive that car 
after that, believe it or not. So it all got pieced back together. It became a ride car at the Holden Racing Team, and you became one of the people who drove that on a very regular basis. That's true. It became a thing called the PR2 car, and uh, I did thousands and thousands of kilometres in that car and loved it. It was actually a really good car. And we used to pop out every now and again. There was a stash of the old Bridgestone tyres, and the original Bridgestone tyres were a steer tyre for the front tyre and a traction tyre, a drive tyre for the rear. And so because they were really crafted to the task, they were pretty handy things at the time. So every now and again, we'd roll out some of those tyres and the boys would look sideways and go, we've got a set of tyres for you. You know, so then you'd find somebody who may have been the right sponsor or the right friend or the right girlfriend or whatever it may be and go, <laughs> check this out. And then you'd pin your ears back and roll your eyes back and go and do a lap. And it was fast. Like I remember doing one with a friend in aviation at Phillip Island at one stage and it would have poked the thing well up the grid. Um, so uh, <laughs> it was good. So, you know, it was one of those things where you're a complete tosser because you were the winner of the Monday Grand Prix. You're the only bloke in it. So, of course, you won it. But it was great fun. It was... Uh, it was a great thing to drive. It was a really, really cool car. But I can't believe Tanda spreading malicious untruths <laughs> about lunching engines are lying flogs. It's nothing to do with that. The only thing that happened was I yanked a radio cord and I think we had to go back to racing radios to get it fixed. He's a tosser. Garth, did you ever get to drive the crashed car? Uh, no, I don't think so. Because it became uh, PR2. Oh, well, in that ca- now PR2, I don't think I drove PR2. I think that was moved on by the time I joined... HRT or the Clayton Enclave. Um, so, no, I don't think I drove that one. Yeah, Crompo ended up doing many yeah, laps. Yeah, I think one. Neil did a lot of laps. I wonder if he boiled that engine as well. <laughs> it sat behind HRT for a number of years. They actually refurbished it. Uh, the Callies got a hold of it, turned it into a two-seater ride car. So if anyone's gone in lucky enough to go with Rick or Todd back in, the, in those days in a two-seat, well, it was actually three seats, driver plus a two-passenger seat car, that was the car. Um, I was fortunate enough, and I've still got it hanging the bonnet at home in the shed, um, size of a barina, but it's uh, <laughs> still hanging upside, hanging up on the shed wall, just as a, I suppose a gentle reminder of uh, what it was. And I've got to say that people say, "How do you get like you fall off a bike, you fall off a horse, get back on it?" And for me, right through practice qualifying at Winton, first time back in the car, I was nervous. I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't want to be in the car. It wasn't until I got through the first race when you start getting those sort of bumps and scrapes and you know door-to-door stuff action you go okay yeah now i'm feeling more normal now and as the weekend got on by the last race i was back to you know my old um aggressive self but up until then it took me a while to get back into that uh, that mental stage is it ever something that you murph garth Cromley ever catch up over or reminisce over because it was such a famous scene watching them all leap over the fence uh, no, but I've got to say that I was very impressed. I think that at that point, it really, for me, it was very humbling knowing that drivers put human life in front of sponsors, teams and everything else. And I know there was a couple of cars that were wounded and they couldn't continue, but there was you know, that, that camaraderie between the drivers at that point, uh, whether you were Ford or Holden, whether you were you know, sponsored by the opposition, it didn't matter. They all came to my, my aid, and, and that was for me. And as I said, Murph was the first voice I remember yelling and screaming. And, and I think from that point on, we, we've always been in contact um, and, been, and been good friends for a long time. 23 years later, the car is still in existence and is owned by Dunlop Series frontrunners Eggleston Motorsport. They have plans to return the car to its VT body, restore the original 1999 HRT livery. Thanks for listening to Supercars Rewind. Be sure to subscribe to the series. Keep an ear out for our post-race coverage, the cool-down lap, fresh off the back, Merlin Darwin Triple Crown. 
Remember, tickets for our annual stop in the top end are available at Ticketek. You can head to supercars.com for more info. We'll catch you next time.